Thank you, Ben, for leading us in that time of worship. Good morning, everybody. My name is Tom, and I am the lead pastor here at Crossroads. I just wanted to um, to start really, really briefly and just say uh, my heart was made um, full this week in the midst of a crazy week in our country and in trying times by the conversations that I had with so many of you about the way you responded to the challenge that I put forth last week and the, the conviction of the Holy Spirit in um, taking a look inside and seeing where we need to, where sin is made manifest in us and doing something about it, confessing that before God, and then going out and doing something in the world where that sin is, the effects of sin are prevalent and, and taking a stand against it. So, um, man, just keep just keep keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, keep leaning into each other, and do just keep keep reaching out in the midst of that. We're gonna dive right in this morning. Um, no, no fancy intro or anything. Just to kind of recap our first two weeks, uh, our ideas have been this. When God's people submit to the work of His Holy Spirit, barriers are broken and people are drawn to Jesus. And as we, um, as we move along, we're gonna, that was 11 verses. Two weeks, we did 11 verses in two weeks. This week, we are going to tackle chapter 1, verse 12, through chapter 2, verse 41. Whole big chunk of scripture. And we're just going to break it down into these three big blocks, right? Replacing number 12, Pentecost and the gift of the Holy Spirit and Peter's first sermon. And if you don't know what that terminology means, I will explain it as we go along. I just kind of wanted to give a framework for, uh, for where we're at. And it's a lot of scripture. I'm not going to read all of it. I'm just going to read kind of bits and pieces. And again, just by way of review, we're looking at, this is Acts 1-4. This is Jesus talking to the disciples on one occasion while he was eating with them. This is post-resurrection, before he ascended into heaven. On one occasion while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. And they listened to him. They obeyed him. Obedience, right? So we're talking about submitting to the work of the Holy Spirit. We submit, we listen, and then we obey. Obedience is a huge part of what we see the disciples doing in Acts, and it's a huge part of what God asks of, of us. As we move along, um, this is chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. They all join together constantly in prayer, along with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and, his, and with his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the, the believers, a group numbering about 120. A couple things that are highlighted in that verse, you can see those, but the idea of together and prayer, those are two things that we see repeated over and over again in the book of Acts, being together. And we're going to unpack this a little bit more next week in our joint service with, uh, with Trinity, but that idea of together has some really specific um, meanings. And, and uh, I think that's going to be a fun conversation with, uh, with Pastor Dan from Trinity. And then the idea of prayer. So up until this point, prayer in the Jewish community has been fixed hour prayer, right? We go to temple and we pray at six, at noon, at three, or whatever that, that looked like, but it was fixed hour prayer. The prayer that Jesus was calling his followers into was a constant, persistent prayer. Just like Paul says, be, you know, pray without ceasing. That's the kind of prayer that Jesus was calling his disciples into. And then I have highlighted Peter. So this is this is Peter. He was one of the disciples. Jesus called him out early and said, On you, Peter, I'm going to build my church. And Peter kind of struggled to follow Jesus' lead while Jesus was alive. And even up to the point of Jesus' death, while Jesus was being tried, um, 
Peter just flaked. He let him down. He denied him three times. Uh, Jesus rises from the dead and he restores Peter. He says, Peter, you're still going to do this. I still have faith in you. Feed my sheep. And Peter says, yes, Lord, I love you and I'll, I'll feed your sheep. Um, Jesus ascends and within days, Peter steps into his position of leadership. Transformed and inspired by the resurrected Christ, Peter steps up and does things that he would not previously has done in a manner that he would not have previously done them. And he steps into this leadership by referring to the scriptures. We see in Acts 1, chapter 20, he, um, as Peter is talking to the, the disciples, he reads quotes from the Psalms. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. Those verses from those Psalms were commonly held by the Jewish people as references to um, bad leaders kind of falling by the wayside and good leaders stepping in and taking their place. Uh, nobody really speculates that it was specifically about Judas who betrayed Jesus. Um, among Jesus' followers, there were 12 guys who he called to himself and that he was entrusting the building of the church to. Judas betrayed Jesus and uh, turned him over to be to the authorities realized what he did, tried to uh, make amends for it, and just was overcome with guilt and remorse. And we can only really speculate what was going on in his mind. And he ended up actually committing suicide because he, he turned Jesus over. So there was this vacancy left amongst the 12. There was only 11. Peter refers to scripture and says, we have to, we have to do something about this. Then they cast lots and the lot fell to Matthias. He was added to the 11 apostles. So throughout the Old Testament, we see this, um, this process of casting lots. It's basically rolling dice. It's a way that God communicated to his followers of, um, of his will. They would, uh, in this particular instance, they narrowed things down to Matthias and one other guy, and then they cast lots. And God spoke to them through those lots and decided that Matthias was to be the guy. And this is really significant. I'm going to push pause here for a second and say this. A lot of this stuff is going to feel like um, like Bible nerd stuff, but it's super important because it bridges the Old Testament to the New Testament. It, we see over and over and over again these references to Jesus in the Old Testament. So um, bear with me, and I think you'll find some of these, these things super, super interesting. And as we look at them in hindsight, we're like, oh my goodness, God really was in control of this thing the whole, the whole way. Um, so they... The casting of lots was significant for a couple of reasons and the replacing of the, um, the 12th apostle. Last time that the followers of God cast lots is right here in Acts one twenty six. They don't need it anymore after this. As we're going to see in a minute, the Holy Spirit will come and the Holy Spirit will reside in each believer and help guide and direct each believer. The external form of God speak to them through the casting of lots is no longer necessary. We don't see lots referred to anymore um, from that point forward in the New Testament. And maybe more importantly, the replacing of the 12th. Um, Luke, the author of Acts, was trying to communicate that this remnant, right, it was really important that if the movement of Jesus was going to grow, it was attached to the remnant of Jewish followers. And that meant that the 12 tribes of Israel had to be represented over and over and over again. 
in, uh, in the Old Testament, we see the nation of Israel referred to as 12 tribes. The 12 tribes had to be represented. They had to be there some in some way, shape, or form. The 12 apostles are what represented those 12 tribes. Judas is gone. There's only 11. They replace him. The 12 tribes are now represented. And within the minds of the Jewish community, that it is a credible, um, a credible movement within the Jewish faith. God has restored the, the 12 tribes of Israel, and now they can move forward and bring the saving message of Jesus to everyone, Jew and Gentile alike. And that brings us to our big idea that we're going to come back to over and over again this morning. God is constant, yet always surprising. We look at something like the, the 12 tribes of Israel and how they exist in the Old Testament, how they exist in the New Testament. They still exist. The manner in which they exist is just different. God is constant, yet always surprising. Quick recap of our timeline up to this point. Jesus dies. Three days later on in the first Easter, he rises. Forty days after that, he ascends to heaven. He tells the disciples to wait before he ascends. Ten days the disciples wait. On day 50, after Jesus' death, um, things start to get funky. And we're going to read chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. When the day of Pentecost came... They were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one had heard their own language being spoken. So um, lots of information captured in just those, uh, those couple, of, couple of verses. The first thing is this idea of Pentecost. Um, many Christians today will hear Pentecost and they have no idea that it actually originated in the Old Testament. Pentecost was one of three pilgrimage festivals on the Jewish calendar. Pilgrimage festival meaning they had to travel to, to Jerusalem. Uh, it was Pentecost was also known as the Feast of Weeks, or, and it was a harvest festival. It was a celebration. It was saying thank you to God for the, the wheat harvest. And the celebration of Pentecost has kind of evolved. It evolved over the course of the Old Testament. Um, it started, and you look in the books of, um, of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers, and it talks about Pentecost and how it should be celebrated with some very, very specific instructions and one of the highlights is uh, what's called a wave offering. Priests would literally wave things in front of the altar. And in this case, it was these interwoven uh, loaves of bread, two. And in hindsight, we look back and we can see those interwoven loaves of bread represent the two people groups of the Jews and the Gentiles that God would bring together in the family of God through the work of Jesus Christ. Super, super important that even back in Exodus and Leviticus, God is pointing forward to the work of Jesus and the people that he's going to bring together. As the, um, the nation of Israel grows and the rabbis teach, they also begin to associate the celebration of Pentecost with the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. God gives the stone tablets to Moses, and a lot of people consider that day the birth of the nation of Israel. And when that happened, um, there was a ruckus, right? There was fire, there was thunder, there was noise. And God gives the stone tablets to Moses to give to the people. 
Fast forward to this Pentecost in Jerusalem. God gives the gift of the Holy Spirit. Old Testament, he gave the gift of the law. New Testament, he gives the gift of the Spirit. There's a ruckus. There's fire. There's noise. There's confusion. It's this parallel between what happened at Pentecost and some people call the birth of the church. In the Old Testament, it was the birth of Israel, the giving of the law, birth of the church, giving of the Holy Spirit. You guys, these parallels are crazy. We have to pay attention to them and see the consistency of what God is doing. Um, he is, God is constant, but he's always surprising in the way that he's doing things. That Pentecost in Jerusalem is when the disciples receive the Holy Spirit. From that point forward, everybody who comes to faith in Christ receives the gift of the Holy Spirit at the moment they come to faith in Christ. And here's why that's important. In the Old Testament, the, um, the Holy Spirit would only reside on specific people as sent by God for a specific reason, for a specific time, often with a specific message. Now, in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit comes to reside in everyone who calls Jesus Lord. Again, you guys, Holy Spirit was at work in the Old Testament. He's at work in the New Testament. God is constant. Holy Spirit is God. God is constant, yet always, always surprising. Going really fast, trying to cover a lot in a short amount of time. Um, another thing that is associated with this Pentecost in Jerusalem is the giving of the gift of tongues. This is Acts 2.4. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. And what this was specifically was they were speaking languages that were not their own and they, that they had not studied. And this gets, um, it gets misapplied, it gets misinterpreted, it gets, it, honestly, frankly, it gets flat out abused. The, some, some Christians will take the idea of tongues to the extent, and they'll say that if you cannot speak in tongues, you are not actually a Christian. And I'm suggesting to you from my reading of scripture, from what I understand, um, that is just wrong. That would be layering something on top of the work of Jesus to be necessary for salvation. The work of Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection is completely sufficient unto itself for salvation. When we come to him through faith, his grace expressed in those things is sufficient. There's nothing else that has to be added onto that. What is significant, though, about the gifts of tongues is this. Again, let's go back to the Old Testament. Genesis um, chapter 11, humanity has kind of gotten uh, a big head. They, they've made some strides. They've, they're like, let's, let's build a tower to show how much we made, and we're going to reach all the way up to God. They were, um, they were trying to display, they were like prideful, and they were going to display that, and they were usurping some of God's, God's power. As a result, God says, I'm going to scatter humanity, and I'm going to confuse their language. What humanity needed in that moment was humility and God provided that to them through the scattering and the confusion of languages. Again, we fast forward to Pentecost in Jerusalem. What the people of God needed was a supernatural unity that would only come through understanding each other in a way that they, they couldn't on their own. Um, there were people from every, every language of the, of the Jewish nation. There were all sorts of different languages that were represented in Jerusalem on that day and then the 12 disciples were able to communicate with everyone there so they could understand god's truth in pentecost in jerusalem what was done at the tower of babel 
was undone for the purposes of God, right? God is constant, yet always surprising. The people of God needed humility in Genesis chapter 11. In Acts chapter 2, the people of God needed unity. God is constant. He knows what we need, and he provides it in a manner in which we need it, yet always surprising. All right, so that was block number two. Block number one, replacing the 12th disciple. Block number two, actual the Pentecost, that first Pentecost in Jerusalem. The rest of our text is Peter's first sermon. In we see in the book of Acts, we see Peter, I think it's like four, three, four, maybe five different sermons that he gives that all follow a very similar pattern to what we're going to see right here. And the first part of that pattern is that the Holy Spirit shows up and does something amazing. He does, does his thing. And in this case, um, he came with fire and with thunder and tongues of fire that um, bestowed the gift of tongues on the disciples, right? An amazing supernatural occurrence. The next thing that happens is that Peter explains what happened. He, he will take the event and he will run it through the filter of scripture and he'll explain it to everybody who was there. So there were thousands of people who were in Jerusalem for the celebration of the Feast of Weeks, for the celebration of Pentecost. So Peter had this opportunity to preach his first sermon to thousands of people. And here's, here's how he explained what they had just experienced. That the gift of tongues was a fulfillment of prophecy. He refers to Joel, an Old Testament prophet, um, specifically Joel chapter 2, and he quotes, he quotes from the prophet and he talks about the things that people will do as a result of the coming of the Holy Spirit. He provides an explanation in terms of fulfilled prophecy. Um, he, he explains what people are seeing not just in the in that very day, but what they've experienced over the course of the last 50 days in Jesus's death and his resurrection and his ascension and the coming of the Holy Spirit as all part of God's plan. From before the foundation of the world, this was God's plan of salvation. And Peter points to it and he culminates the explanation with this is that Jesus is the promised Lord and Messiah of the Old Testament. He is God in the flesh. He has come to deliver people from their sins to save not only um, the Jewish nation of Israel, but to offer salvation to the entire world. Jesus is Lord. Um, and the next, the final part of the process is when, when the people hear all that, they experience the move of, of the Holy Spirit. Peter explains what happens and they, they respond, they're, the text says that they're cut to the heart and they ask Peter, what should we do? And he responds with repent and be baptized. Repentance, repenting is that like that scary word, street, preacher, street preachers and people with megaphones and, and cardboard signs yelling at us. Um, but what it means is to acknowledge our wrongdoing before God and to commit to following his leading as best we can so that we don't, so that we don't do that anymore. Repent and be baptized. Baptism is a symbolic act in which we identify with Jesus and our desire to leave behind an old way of life and move on and be transformed by the work of his Holy Spirit and move into a new way of life. And Peter extends that invitation. 
Dude's first sermon, right out of the gate, 3,000 people get saved. I think my first sermon might have been preached to like 30 people. Um, Peter extends an invitation. The work of the Holy Spirit did something in him, transformed him, and then did a work through him. Just amazing, amazing stuff. Uh, God is constant, yet always surprising. And the idea of God's constancy, we see, um, we see represented in the fact that God's faithfulness will never change. His trustworthiness will never change. His ability to do the miraculous at just the right time does not change. His desire for relationship with each one of us does not change. His ability, I have it captured, there's the word redemption, his ability to take just terrible circumstances to bring great good out of terrible things does not change. And his empowerment of ordinary people to do extraordinary things does not change. Those are all things that we see in the, the, the big chunk of text that we just looked at. Constant attributes of God that do not change. And specifically, we see a ragtag bunch of disciples who were filled with their own personal agendas and junk and dysfunction, they come together through the power of the Holy Spirit and they turn the world upside down, right? They, they, God takes them and transforms them and does something amazing with them. In the Old Testament, people had to go to God. That's what the celebration of Pentecost was about, right? You had to travel to Jerusalem, to the temple where God resided. You had to go to him. This Pentecost at Jerusalem, now, God comes to us. Old Testament, we had to go to God. New Testament, God comes to us, right? God wants to be with us, but the manner in which it happens is different. God is constant, yet always surprising. And then and then Peter's sermon, right? Peter was a hot-headed fisherman who couldn't really control his temper. He's changed by the risen Jesus, and he delivers this sermon that begins the the church and just launches this amazing movement of God. So we have these constant attributes of God. And I think, unfortunately, um, that leads us to put God in a box, right? Because God always uh, is always, we can always trust him to be faithful and we can always trust him to come through and we can always trust him to do the miraculous. Um, we put him, we put him in a box. And I actually want to, this picture when I went looking for an image to put up here I had in mind a cardboard box but this came up and this is even so much better the idea of a lock box right because we will like okay this is how God is spoke to supposed to act and we have this idea of when he's spoke, supposed to act so we're going to shove him in this box we're going to lock him in there and we're going to line him up with all these other things that we might turn to when we feel like we need them and just he's there for us to reach out to and unlock his box when we want to and we get trapped in this way of thinking that God should do certain things the way that he has always done them. And if he doesn't do them that way, either we've done something wrong, he's gone on a coffee break, or maybe like there's other people who are, who are doing something, something wrong. So to try to help us move beyond this idea of God in a box, right? I want to, I'm going to end with this. I'm going to end with an Old Testament passage. And, and a challenge for us. This is a passage from the book of Isaiah. Isaiah's is Old Testament prophet, and he is um, he's trying to help people of his day with the same thing, not put God in a box 
and look for um, the constancy and the surprise all at the same time that the God of the Bible uh, always, always delivers. Here we go. This is Isaiah uh, 43. This is what the Lord said. He who made a way through the Red Sea, that's a, ref a way through the sea, that's a reference to God bringing his people through the Red Sea when they're being chased by the Egyptian army. This is what the Lord says. He who made a way through the sea, a path through the mighty waters, who drew out the chariots and horses, the army and reinforcements together, and they lay there never to rise again, extinguished, snuffed out like a wick. Forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. The Red Sea was something cool. God did a miracle. He saved the people of Israel from the Egyptian army. But don't get hung up on that. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. The water was a barrier. In the Red Sea incident, the water was a barrier. Right here in the desert, the Israelites um, are wandering through the wasteland, spending all this time in the desert, and God is going to save them by means of water. Water was a barrier. It's now a means of their saving grace. God is doing a new thing. The wild animals honor me, the jackals and the owls, because I provide water in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland to give drink to my people, my chosen, the people I formed for myself, that they may proclaim my praise. I'm going to go back to 19 and just leave that up here because this is kind of the crux of this passage. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a new way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. The experience at the Red Sea was a harrowing experience which God saved his people from the Egyptian army and the sea by means of creating dry land in the middle of the sea. In the desert, as the people of Israel wandering through the desert, God saves them by means of water. The things are completely, completely flip-flopped. The constant is that God saves his people. He chooses a different manner to do it in the Old Testament then in the New Testament, or sorry, between the Red Sea and the, um, and the wilderness adventures of the people of Israel, but God still saves his people, but he does it in a different manner. The activity of God is always flows from those attributes that are the same, but the manner in which he does things will meet us right where we're at. He met the people of Israel where they were at and what he did changed, but the reasons why he did it and from the place which he did it, did not change. So we have this idea of God being constant, yet always surprising. Um, and that leads me to kind of my closing, my closing challenge for you. In what area of your life might God be trying to break out of the box in which you have placed him? And what are you going to do about it? Um, where have you put God in a box? And what are you going to do about it? I would encourage you to go back and, and read um, that big chunk of scripture this week and read maybe just spend this week reading through the, the you know remainder of chapter one and chapter two and, and ask the Holy Spirit to, to speak to you and to show you how God is constant and to show you how he might want to surprise you right here and, and right now. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, uh, we thank you for who you are. God, we thank you for your constancy. We thank you for your trustworthiness. God, we thank you um, that you are just so, so good. A rock that we can stand upon um, without fear. 
And God, at the same time, we thank you that you do surprise us. God, we ask for eyes to see the new things that you are doing, that we might not get hung up on the things of the past, that we might have um, an open heart and an open mind to what you might be speaking to us right here, right now. Lord Jesus, I ask that even in this moment, you would be tugging on the hearts of the people of Crossroads to, um, to respond to your work in their lives and to allow you out of that box and to do a new thing. Lord Jesus, we love you and we thank you. Amen.